RSSB presents the Moral Avity magazine. I'd like you to hear this letter from a listener who signs herself Fidelity. She tells me, My story may sound like something out of Woman's magazine, but I want you to believe that it's true. In those days, there only seemed to be three writers, uh, three women writers that everybody had heard of. There was Kate O'Brien and there was Mary Lavin and there was Maura Laverty. And I think we thought these were the sort of the, the, the spearheads of women's writing and were very impressed by them. Maura Laverty was a novelist, a children's writer, a playwright, a cookery writer, a broadcaster, an agony aunt, a journalist... Some people might remember her name on the credits of Talcaro, which was, I suppose, our first homegrown soap opera. I'm very thankful to you for uh, bearing with Anastasia and the agency all this time. She's not the easiest person in the world to get on oh, with. Oh, where that were your man, dear. I uh, know, I'm very thankful to you, Maggie. Oh, Gabby, don't be talking nonsense. She turned her hand to many different kinds of writing and all of the writing that she did is still very vivid and readable. And I think she's important because she was a woman with a voice in the years between about, I suppose, 1931 and 1966. Her voice was heard. The title of the jig you will now hear is not reflected in the lively playing by the David Curry band of As Old as the Hills. The writer Maura Laverty exists in a twilight of popular memory now. But 50 years ago, she was a household name in Ireland, with her own programme on the radio. She was born Maura Kelly in 1907 and grew up in Rathangan, County Kildare. Of everything she ever wrote, there are two novels from the 1940s which have most of her own self in them, Never No More and No More Than Human. They're very funny, vivid books, full of life, and ever since I read them, I've always wanted to know more about Maura Laverty. What kind of person she was, what kind of life she had. Katrina Clear is a historian who studied Maura Laverty's work for its cultural and social significance, but she also loves the books. Most people will remember her as a cookery broadcaster or writer and there'll be a lot of kitchens around the country where Full and Plenty is up there with its little short stories at the beginning of every section. But she's forgotten as a novelist and it wasn't until Virago reissued her books Never No More and No More Than Human, which were published in 1942 and 1944 respectively. It wasn't until then that a lot of Irish people, myself included, realised that she had published four very good novels in the 1940s and that they were banned or in some other way marginalised and that a lot of Irish people of, let's say, my parents' generation who would have come to adulthood in the 40s and 50s would not have even been aware of the fact that Maura Laverty was a novelist as well as all the other things she was. There was always a hot seedy cake on Friday evenings. It was a good, rich mixture of flour, half its weight in butter and sugar a teaspoonful of each of bread soda and cream of tartar, a pinch of salt, eggs, buttermilk and caraway seeds. Grandmother didn't hold with newfangled foreign methods of beating butter and sugar to a cream. Except in the case of Christmas cakes, she always rubbed the butter into the flour. 
Never No More was published in 1942 and it was published at a time when there was a vogue for a lot of these kind of elegaic memories of a simpler past. And Moral Laverty, Never No More was set in a small town in Kildare, which she fictionalised as Bally Derrick. In, it was set in around 1918 to about 1922. And from the geographical references, it's very obvious that Ballyderrick is Rathangan, where Maura Kelly, as Laverty's maiden name was Kelly, where she grew up. And it is a wonderfully vivid account of a, a girl, a teenage girl, growing up with her very loving and strict grandmother, um, who's, a, who's a farmer in her own right, out in the country and coming in and out of the town with all kinds of anecdotes about local p- things that went on with stories of, of of love, I suppose, and very funny stories as well. And interwoven through the whole book are recipes. You just don't read it when you're hungry. That's all. By the time she started writing novels, Maura Laverty was in her mid-30s, married with two children. Her younger daughter, Finbara, known as Barry, was about seven when her mother wrote Never No More. She wrote it in three weeks, from first to last, with hardly a correction. I've seen the, the, the manuscript. It never occurred to me then that that was extraordinary, but it does now. And I remember uh, long summer evenings when she read out her day's work to us, my sister and me and my father. That got beautiful. I was looking through her reviews recently, and they must have pleased her. To the, down to her boots. There were gorgeous things were said about her, you know, in prestigious newspapers and by very intelligent people. It wasn't greeted as high literary art, but it did make a big stir. Sean O'Fuelon wrote, Be as critical as you like about this book, its charm is irresistible. And Brendan Behan wrote to Maura from Arbor Hill Prison to say the Republican prisoners were fighting over whose turn it was to read it. Mrs Laverty, ma'am, I give you my solemn word, there was nearly bloodshed over it. Thank you for the great enjoyment you have given us. But there was one place where the charm of Never No More was very much resisted and where ripples from the book are felt to this day. Kay Dunn is my name. I'm branch librarian in Rathangan for 31 years. Um, my book club members are joining me tonight to celebrate and learn more about the life of Maura Laverty. Uh, we have Steve and Chris, Christine, Hilary, Mary, Kay, uh, Deirdre and Deirdre's mum. Um, strangely enough, this year I invited everybody to read her books again. Um, she wasn't loved here by everybody. Um, Never No More um, was a book from a different time and quite a lot of um, people were hurt. You know, when the idea about reading the book first came into the book club, a few people said that uh, there were some issues about it when the book was first released and people were unhappy about it. So there were some preconceptions of going in to start to read it. But, you know, I I couldn't understand it um, because I think it's a book written by somebody who really loved the area loved the characters who lived in the area, described them in, in great detail. Uh, there was a, a sort of a fictional story going throughout the book, but I think mostly the book was about um, Rathangan and the surrounding area and the characters in the area as well. So I really enjoyed, really enjoyed the book. It was fre- very fresh, quite modern in some ways as well. Had anyone else here? Who grew- Is there someone here who grew up yes, in Rathangan? Yes, and Kay. Yes. Oh, sorry, I'm Kay, and I was born and reared in Rathangan, and I'm living here. 
and I read the book and I enjoyed it very much and I didn't recognise anybody in it. But many, many years ago, she wasn't spoken about too well. Just you didn't talk about moral liberty. And it's just this thing about her writing about the place and some people recognise themselves, you know. But she wrote beautifully, I think. And she's another book as well. What's the second one? About Lenary. Lenary. And that's beautiful, like, you know. You see, I thoroughly disliked her until I read the book as a child and I was almost ashamed to say at home that I liked it. But when I came into my teens, I read it again and actually I could feel the love and I could walk those fields where she walked and smell the bluebells and pick the primroses. And I knew that I had forgiven her anyway. I couldn't see really what the fuss was about, even though one of my ancestors was, is, in, is in the book and described quite graphically in the book. Now, this is... is um, Heck Murray was my granduncle, and uh, I'm starting at a chapter where um, Maura describes him. Um, more often than not, Heck Murray would be there too, hugging himself with his short arms and giggling now and again at some private joke of his own. Poor Heck was a simpleton who practically lived at Grand's house where he got his meals, an odd few shillings and a corner of his own beside the fire. Judy and myself enjoyed Heck, a red-headed little block of a creature with a toothless grin and poor unsteady eyes. He might have been any age from 40 to 60. When he wanted to wheedle anything out of Gran, he always referred to himself as a poor orphan. Surely you wouldn't turn the back of your hand to me, Mrs Lacey, he would whimper. I'm only a poor orphan, with me father and mother lying under the sod. Um, actually, in that, I can understand why my dad disliked her for that passage. Because there was quite inaccuracies in it, because his mother and father were alive. And he would not have been neglected. And he wouldn't have needed to be fed in other people's houses. Well, my father, actually, he couldn't bear to mention her. And like any time anybody ever uh, spoke about her, or in school, we learned very little about her in school either. But um, I remember him telling us a story. Um, she came back to visit um, and a lady that she was friendly with in town, uh, Miss Mack, who Olive will remember. And um, we had a lot of young boys sitting around the corners uh, some things don't change and uh, they decided she had a nice fur coat and she had a nice hat on her that evening my father said and uh, the young boys decided that they would get some stones and they would throw some stones at her and she never came back after that we knew about anyway so there was that more or less speaks for itself doesn't it I still couldn't quite see why there was such anger towards the book but as we kept talking I began to understand It was the real things that she was writing about. A 13-year-old girl made pregnant by an old man. A woman who has several children by different men. Things that might go on in any town, but everybody knew you weren't supposed to go telling the world about them. I remember there was one... uh, We had a little little part of our street here years ago whom I'm only going on memory now, and folklore probably some of it, It was our own little red light district. But she spoke about some of the poor unfortunate girls who who, um, had children out of wedlock at that stage. 
but it was a totally different era. But by the time she wrote Never No More, Maura Kelly had left Rathangan far behind her. At 17, she went to Spain, and her adventures there are brought to life in her novel No More Than Human. When Virago republished the book in the 1980s, Maeve Binchy wrote the introduction. I think Maura Laverty gives you a very good picture of what Irish young womanhood or girlhood uh, was like in those days. But very often there wasn't enough lot of money to, to educate the girls. The boy had to be educated or the boys had to be educated. That was more important. Girls, you were wondering what was the point of, of, of education and maybe all they were going to do was get married anyway. So what there was in those days was a system where a lot of Irish women went abroad for a year, uh, but usually to Spain, very often to Spain, to work. Uh, the word au pair had not been, I think, quite invented then, but it was coming to work minding children in a nice household. And it's extraordinary when you look back at it. We were a strange, class-ridden and ludicrous society at that time because minding children in your own country would not have been considered good enough at all. It was the maids did that. But when Mora, or Delia as the character in the book is called, gets to Spain, she finds life as a governess oppressive and lonely. She's not treated as part of the family. The only place she's happy is in the kitchen. Juanita's cooking was wonderful. Those Spanish dishes, the rich soups and the melting omelettes and the hot savoury casseroles of saffron-coloured rice and tomato-smothered macaroni, the 50 different kinds of milky fish with 50 different sauces for serving with them, the baked, the roast, the braised fowls, the turkey stuffed with dried peaches and the chicken simmered to butter tenderness in a delicate mushroom sauce laced with wine. Her descriptions are very vivid and her descriptions of the food as well, the kind of families and so on. And the other governesses, some of whom she's fond of, some of whom are very narrow-minded, other Irish governesses, and who pride themselves on being very moral, although she comments at one stage that um, they, they, there was a reason, she reckons, for their morality, that you would only to look at most of them, and she puts herself in the same category to realise that there are no threat at all to the Spanish home, you know, that compared to Spanish girls who are beautiful. Mora doesn't last long as a governess. She's fired by one family for kissing a boy at a dance, and from the next for wearing an indecent scarlet swimsuit on the beach. By now, no family will hire her again as a governess. Word has got out she's flighty. She's 18 on her own with no money, but she's free. She finds scraps of work in Madrid, teaching English, secretarial stuff. For months, she makes so little money, all she can think about is food. But gradually she finds her feet, she falls in love, she falls out of love. She makes friends with political journalists and anarchists. She starts sending articles home to the Irish papers. And this is how she becomes a journalist herself. In the book, No More Than Human, I think that's where we see, we see most of her. That's definitely where we see she's actually telling what, what she's been through herself. And she didn't want uh, to stay in this life. She'd seen too many people stay in it. And she wanted to move from it, so she moved to journalism and moved to writing. And what I think is important about her is she has shown people uh, something that I've always believed in myself, that you you can really, you can make your own life. And in fact, you have to make your own life. She could have got stuck there forever and stayed where she was. But she decided she, she was going to, to change and move. And there was a little time, little help if you were trying to move from one 
job to another or one class to another or one kind of work to another. Very little help. People asked you not to rock the boat. By the end of the book, Delia is engaged to a Hungarian man. But on the very last page, she comes home to Ireland for one last visit and meets an Irishman who's been writing to her all the time she's away, a kind of pen friend. When I saw him, I knew that I could never go anywhere again unless he were with me, she writes. She dumps her Hungarian immediately and marries the Irishman instead. And this is apparently just how it happened in Maura's own life. She came home from Spain on a holiday. She met Jim Laverty and broke an engagement to marry him within a week. It was 1928. They settled in Dublin. And that same year, Maura's radio career began, a career that lasted 40 years. I've seen enough of life to know that happiness, fortunately, is not all that rare. But rare indeed is the grafting of two great talents, as on this recording of Mario del Monaco and the Mantovani Orchestra's playing of the lovely Neapolitan song Catherine. Maura and Jim had three children. Financially, things never seemed to have been very stable, and they moved around Dublin a lot, from luxurious accommodation to very basic flats, and back again. Much of Dublin was still in tenements, and observing inner-city life up close gave her the inspiration for one of her novels, Lift Up Your Gates. She wrote prolifically in the 1940s. Her first cookery book was illustrated by a young Louis Labrocchi, and she wrote four novels in all, which were well-received around the world. But she was cut off rather cruelly from the readers she could have reached in her own country because of censorship. Her late daughter, Barry, was asked about this in 1992. I'll tell you what annoyed her, though, uh, when her books were banned. She, that didn't annoy her. It really, really hurt, because she was never anything but innocent. And which of her books were banned? Every single one of them, except the children's books, and I'm surprised they didn't think of banning those as well. They, they used to be listed as indecent, immoral and obscene. You know, and to have the work that came out of your heart called that, it would break your heart, wouldn't it? And did you ever see anything indecent or immoral or obscene in them? Of course I didn't. I mean, nobody could except somebody with the wits screwed on back to front. Why were her books banned? There's no record of why. The Irish Censorship Board never had to explain its decisions. So we can only guess. Katrina Clear thinks it has something to do with how she wrote about the female body. And she's found something quite interesting to back this up. A copy of No More Than Human, labelled Irish edition, published a few years after the original. So it must have got in on appeal, provided certain passages were removed. There's a wet nurse called Thomasina in, in the house in which Delia is a governess. And there's also another terribly prim Irish woman there as a governess. And this wet nurse, Thomasina, has a habit of... And I, I, I think even myself, this is rather, rather crude. She squirts her milk up into the air to amuse the children. And the other Irish governess comes in one day and gets really cross with her about this and has a big fight with her and storms off the job because the woman of the house is not going to sack her good wet nurse just because an Irish governess takes exception to it. Now, in the Irish edition of the book, Thomasina does not... Thomasina's only offence is to actually breastfeed in front of the other children. This offends the governess a little bit implausibly, in fact, and she storms off. So I think it's interesting that that was considered too strong for Irish readers at the time. 
when there are references in the book to prostitution, procuresses, and there is one reference also to an abortion, not explicit, an early abortion, you know, carried out with herbs and, and hot water and things like that. When you look through Moral Laverty's papers, you see how censorship operates by a fog of silence and confusion because her readers are writing to her saying, I heard you had a new book out. I can't find it anywhere. The bookshops haven't heard of it. My library doesn't know about it. Maybe you'd have a copy I could take a lend of. Maura herself was convinced that Lift Up Your Gates was banned for its descriptions of appalling housing conditions and TB in the Dublin slums. Hello. Do you ever think as much as you should about things here in Ireland? We've had 25 years of native government in this part of the country. How have we utilised it? And when Sean McBride's party, Clan the Publicta, contested the 1948 election, in what was probably her most overtly political action, it was Maura Laverty who wrote the script to their groundbreaking campaign film, Our Country. An immigration which should not be necessary. An immigration which, in fact, the most reverend Dr. Dignan describes as a slow bleeding to death of our nation. Maura Laverty never wrote another novel after the 1940s, though she tried to. But encouraged by Hilton Edwards and Michal McLeamore of the Gate Theatre, she turned her hand to playwriting, and this is when the artist Pauline Buick got to know her. She was living in Leinster Road in Rathmines. It was a house set back from the road with big trees, and her son Jimmy, who was much younger than her other two children, uh, Maeve and Barry, uh, would sit at the window looking out, and I said, Jimmy, what are you thinking about? And he said, I'm waiting for a tree to fall. Uh, Maura would be in her room writing, and then she would appear from her room, dressed beautifully, like a sort of, um, oh, like a like a, a ballet dancer in a sense. She looked so beautiful, and uh, she would be going out to meet some very important director or somebody to do with the Olympia Theatre, and she would uh, spend time telling me, just a teenage little girl, a friend of her daughter's, what she was going to do. It was as if she was getting a thrill from hearing what she was going to do by hearing her own voice. All Maura Laverty's children are dead now, but her nephew, Connor Kavna, and his sister, Jerry Lloyd, who is Maura's goddaughter, remember her with great fondness. Memories of Maura would be sitting behind. She used to drive a little Morris Minor. And we always knew it was her that was coming up the road to collect us because you could just about see her head above the steering wheel where she sat so low and looked underneath the rim of the steering wheel along the, the bonnet. She was very loving and very kind, very gentle. Parties were 20 to the dozen. And she would show me how to make little almond shapes of fruit and how to use the cochineal to make them different colours, like apples, green and red, and leaves were green and gold, things like that. 
my impression was that <laughs> Mother Peg was a far better cook than Maura was. And that was probably because Maura always presented the fancy food that I can remember. And the coffee beans and the chocolate being melted and mixed in with the dressings on the cake. And my mother would cook the food that you would like to eat. <laughs> so It was fine uh, sort of country food. Uh, there would be, you know, meat and two veg, but it always looked as if it was beautifully cooked. But her Christmas pudding would be as fruity and as soft and as delicious as you could ever imagine. And she would kindly give me a slice to take home for my mother or whatever. Um, she was over generous because if you said to Maura, uh, that's a lovely lampshade, she'd say, wait a minute and take the bulb out and give it to me. And I would say, no, 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 no. And I, I learned never to admire anything because she would take the rug off the floor and give it to you. And what about Maura's husband, Jim? By now he was working in journalism too, but increasingly the two of them seemed to be living separate lives. Her husband worked at night in the Irish Times. I think he did the layout of, uh, in those days you had to lay out the lettering. And um, he would have sandwiches, beautiful onion sandwiches made every single night for him. He came back to his onion sandwiches. He would go straight to bed and he, late at night or early morning and he would sleep through the day. So basically, it was as if he didn't exist. And also, I think it was almost like uh, Maura never spoke of him. I, being Barry's friend, and Barry never spoke of him. It was like he didn't exist. Jim became more and more strict. Now, Maura was becoming more and more famous. And I think there might have been a little touch of jealousy between them. She shouldn't be the man of the house, if you get what I'm trying to say. She was more famous than he was. I could see it um, before Talcaro started on television, when it was on stage. Maura earned an enormous amount of money. She was paid an enormous amount of money. And then Hilton Edwards and Michael McLeamore became involved with her, and there was more, you know, and I think Uncle Jim felt that this wasn't right, and he got more sour. At some point, Jim started working in a newspaper in Belfast. He and Maura did not officially split up, but they were living apart, certainly by 1960, when theatre director Christopher Fitzsimon remembers meeting her for the first time. And I remember saying to her that I had read her novel No More Than Human and when the uh, heroine, Delia Scully, came back from being a au pair and then a governess in Spain uh, and she had been having correspondence with a young man in Ireland called Michael and she was just coming home for a holiday and was going to go back to Spain and when she saw Michael on the quayside at Dunleary she thought, no, this is it, I'm going to marry him, I'm not going back to Spain. And I said to Maura Laverty on this evening, I was so glad that she decided she was going to marry Michael and Maura said, yes, she did, but she left him again. Maura was by now, in effect, a single parent, managing on a freelance income. And despite all her outward success, she was under financial pressure. 
Now, Hilton and Michael were not good businessmen. They were poor bookkeepers. They didn't really do their accounts properly. And when a play like Liffey Lane or Tolkoro was a tremendous hit in the gaiety and kept being revived, I mean, year after year, you'd see when something wasn't too, doing too well, the Tolkoro would come back for three weeks. And the money was exchange was ringing at the box office and Maura Laverty, who didn't have an agent, would have to write to them, Dear Hilton and Hall, please remember that I have written these plays and I have three small children to bring up. And Hilton would bluster and reply, Oh yes, Maura, but I have 23 children and if you count the stage hands, it's about 40. The, the company are my children and I have to th- think of them and I have to pay them each £5.10 shillings a week. But she was the author of the plays and she should have been getting a percentage every night as well as a commissioning fee. And she would sometimes have to wait for over a year before she she got, well, we'll send you an advance of £15, darling. And then, when we've had our accounts done at the end of the year, Hilton would say, um, we'll, we'll make it up to you. And these letters go on and on and on, and she was never adequately reimbursed for Tolkoro and Liffey Lane. Haven't you often wished for real cleanliness in your kitchen? You have this cleanliness when you cook electrically, because with an electric cooker there is no smoke, no fumes, and, of course, no dust. Well, in the meantime, we have to keep on the job, and a Donegal listener wants to know just how stiffly should egg whites be beaten for a sponge cake. The eggs should be beaten until they stand up... The programme was reaching 100,000 female listeners, and the sponsors, the ESB, were delighted with it, even though not all of their staff were. This is from an internal staff newsletter in 1960. I can't stand that woman's voice. We've heard that comment so often here in public relations department from our male colleagues that we've given up the old answer. We couldn't care less. The programme is not addressed to you. In 1960, Moura published her most enduring cookery book, Full and Plenty. Edited versions of it are still in print, though the original doorstopper with its distinctive blue and yellow cover is a collector's item at this stage. In Ballymaloo Cookery School, Dorina Allen and her colleague are looking through Moura Laverty's cookery books for their own research. So this is Rosalie Dunn, and, and Rosalie and I worked together for many, many years, and we're, at the moment, we're uh, revising my traditional Irish traditional cooking, which I published, I suppose it was published about 15 or 16 years ago, Rosalie, wasn't 95, it? 95, I think. Well, 95, well done. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, my publisher, Kyle Katie in London, uh, wants to re- uh, revise it, and we're working on that at the moment, and she needs about another 100 recipes. So, of course, it was uh, really interesting to uh, be revisiting Maura Laverty's cookbooks. Well, it's a long time since I read Full and Plenty originally. My mother had it and I loved the story about the prospective daughter-in-law coming to tea and the, the mother-in-law was just so anxious to make lovely sweet cakes but the, and got her neighbour to make a sponge and then she herself, the mother, 
in law made her soda bread thinking that the girl would have no mass in this but that's all she ate she was so delighted with it <laughs> that's I just remember that as a really lovely story really she's yeah. focused on what we have in Ireland this is just the end of one era so you have things like um, that sort of would horrify a lot of young people particularly nowadays like sheep's head soup and a wonderful description there of preparing that but, uh, but you know um, uh, all these kind of things took, were taken completely for granted and um, and, and you know another at another period another passage there she was talking about using the water that um, you boiled potatoes in um, as uh, to make soda bread as and she called that winter buttermilk so there were you know that's the sort of thing that in the in the cookbooks even 10 years later there is absolutely no mention of so this is really valuable uh, social record apart from anything else and she says, every time Ireland is put in the dock, I feel our uh, diplomatists are sadly lacking as counsel for the defence that they don't bring forward in mitigation of our crimes the fact that we have given a four-leaf shamrock to the world. One leaf is W.B. Yeats, another is boiled potatoes in their jackets, another Barry Fitzgerald, and the fourth is soda bread. Um, and the greatest of these uh, is soda bread. Spongy white soda bread with a flowery brown crust crusts. Flat sweet griddle bread with an inch and a half of tender well-baked dough sandwiched between thin crisp crusts. Wholesome brown bread with growth and health and energy in its pleasantly rough nuttiness. So, I mean, aren't you just licking your lips? <laughs> When RTE television started in the early 1960s, they wanted a drama serial like Coronation Street. You'll wear no overcoat. Can't you wear that nice new jacket and not be making a disgrace of yourself in that rag of a thing? Christopher Fitzsimon was a producer in RTE and he straight away thought of asking Maura to adapt Tolka Row for television. It was an instantaneous hit. And the reason was that the people of Ireland were seeing themselves. And at the end of the first 13, the controller said, I want two series of 13 for next year. And will Mrs. Laverty go on writing them? And I asked Mrs. Laverty and Mrs. Laverty said yes. And she got, I think, an extra two pounds a week for doing for her second and third series. She was paid 30 guineas a week for Talcaro. Not a fortune, but a stable enough income to just about allow her to get a mortgage for the first time, having rented all her life. By now, her daughter Maeve was married in America and Barry in Italy and Jimmy was in boarding school. So she was on her own. It was, I think in retrospect, a quite a burden for Maura to do this as getting these half-hour dramas out every week was quite an effort, I think, now. And sometimes she'd be late with a script and it was Carolyn Swift who had to ring her up and say, look, Maura, please, hurry up. Um, and she said, oh, gosh, I have to do my radio show this afternoon. Um, I promise you I'll have it uh, to buy at latest tomorrow evening. But it was two days later and... Mary Daly would be sitting round waiting to type it up and so on. So it was like that. It was hand-to-mouth for us, but it was very hand-to-mouth for her as well. Early in 1966, Maura broke her hip, but she insisted on continuing to deliver her Talcaro scripts. Maura had to 
be seen to disappear from the scene because she didn't want any interruptions. She didn't want any interference. She didn't want phone calls. She didn't want visits because she was so far behind in her scripts. She was so badly in need of money that she had to get this work done. So as far as everybody was concerned, except my mother, Maura was off in the country somewhere, holed up in a house writing away, when in fact she was living at this time in Butterfield Avenue in Rathfarnham. And Peg hadn't heard from her for at least a week, and that brought about this anxiety. So me being the youngest, I was volunteered, and I got in through a little small window above the garage, and Maura was dead for six or seven days when we discovered her. And she died of a stroke. It was a very difficult scene, certainly at my age. But Maura died in her bed with her hand across the bed over to a cup of coffee, because it appeared to be a cup of coffee insofar as the bottom of the cup now was all sticky brown. And the spoon was still lying across her fingers. And it would appear that Morris suddenly passed away. Shortly after Maura died, her daughter Maeve in Springfield, Pennsylvania, rang, uh, wrote to my mother and asked her if she could send her mother's black sheepskin coat. So Maeve after a couple of weeks rang, wrote wrote to mum and thanked her and told her when she put the coat on, she felt her mother's arms were around her and it eased her pain. And I sincerely hope it did. Maura's death was devastating for her children. Jimmy struggled afterwards. He died young of a drugs overdose. Maeve in America also died tragically young, leaving small children. Only Barry survived and eventually flourished as an artist, living happily in France with her husband till her death just a few years ago. The memory of popular writers tends to fade when they die. Maura Laverty was more than a popular writer, but her artistic work seems to have been derailed by censorship and then by the burden of being the breadwinner for her family. Her writing about food was important culturally. She reminded women in particular that they had valuable skills and recipes at their disposal, handed down mother to daughter, that Irish cooking traditions were something to be proud of. In the end, though, her voice endures as long as her books are still read. Back in Rathangan Library, Olive Harrison is leafing through Full and Plenty, a book she bought in the early days of her marriage. Did you ever cook from it? Oh, I did. I made different things from it, all right. Yes, it's nice recipes there, and she tells you all about them. It'd be worth your while to get it. Health and, cooking for Health and Happiness, the name of that chapter. Glaze the top of an apple tart, and you are not merely adding sweetness and a deeper colour to the crust. You are voicing your love for all that is burnished and golden and gladdening in nature and in people and in art. 
Well, I think that's about all for this week. And so until next Tuesday, goodbye. Keep your kitchen clean. Save on your LSD. The cheap, cheap, cheapest way for you to cook. Electricity.